This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, we're looking this evening at verses 5 through 9. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. Hear the word of God. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open to us your word. These things are discerned only by your spirit. And so we pray for that spirit, Father, to be present with us, to guide us in our thinking, our study tonight. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The writer to the Hebrews is arguing for the superiority of Christ Jesus, that he is, specifically, that he is superior to anything that the people of God enjoyed under the old covenant. Some of those things were pretty impressive. Some of those things were pretty attention-grabbing. You know, when a prophet says, thus says the Lord, uh, and it comes to pass. Uh, that, that's the kind of thing that could uh, make you uh, take notice. But Jesus is superior to the prophets. The prophets said, thus says the Lord. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. And then in the remainder of chapter 1, he argues how Christ is superior not just to the prophets, but to the angels themselves. And we sometimes lose sight of the prominence of angels in Scripture, so the roles that they played, and to the importance that they had in the minds of many of these early Christians. On the one hand, we don't want to go overboard and become obsessed with angels, consumed with angels, trusting in angels. On the other hand, we don't want to neglect them either. We don't want to ignore them. We don't want to uh, fail to take advantage of what the Bible does teach us about them. And yet these believers seem to be going a little bit more toward giving more weight, more importance to angels, maybe than was due. And certainly uh, in comparison to Christ himself. And we saw in chapter one that he argues that Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior in his name. He's the son. They're but servants. He's superior to them in power. Uh, While 
angels may carry out the power of God. It's the Son, it's Jesus who wields the power of God, who, of course, is uh, the, the one who, who reigns. And then also Christ is superior to the angels in honor. Then the writer takes just a few moments to make some application uh, to, to sort of uh, drive home some of this that he is talking about. And uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 are essentially a how much more argument. You know, if those who were under the old covenant, covenant given by the Lord through Moses, mediated by angels, uh, if, if they faced the kind of, of, of rebuke, of discipline, of chastening that they did for neglecting that old covenant, how much more do we place ourselves in danger if we neglect and ignore the revelation that God has given us under the new covenant, a day of brighter light, a day of greater revelation? So it's a, it's a how much more argument, and therefore we dare not neglect it, as he says, but rather we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we're anchored in it, so that we drift away from it. But now he returns again to his, uh, his teaching on the superiority of Christ, again with relationship to angels, and specifically here, uh, emphasizing Christ is superior to the angels in terms of his rule over all things. Now, we see that in verses 5 through 9, where he explains that rule basically in three ways. Now, each of these three um, is, 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 is hyphenated. I uh, couldn't come up with just one word, adjective, for each one as, as you go through the passage there. So each one of these will be hyphenated descriptions of the rule of Jesus. First of all, it is an age-to-come rule. Actually, I could have come up with one word. I, I thought about saying it's an eschatological rule. Um, but I would have lost my hyphenated adjectives, and that's a big word anyway. So we'll use it later. But it is an age-to-come rule. Besides, that's how he describes it in verse 5. Notice what he says. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, or the age to come, of which we are speaking. Now, notice he says it's not to angels that God subjected the world to come. He doesn't say just that God subjected the world. In fact, there was uh, a lot of thinking on the part of people that the world now was under the administration of angelic beings, uh, whether good or evil. You say, well, that's, that's kind of silly. Well, no, there was scriptural warrant for that. Uh, going back to Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, uh, which in the ESV reads, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Well, some renderings of the old Septuagint read according to the angels of God. But it's not just that passage, and that may well have been the, the version that the writer of the Hebrews was using and referring to. Uh, certainly some version of that Greek translation, the Septuagint. Uh, there are other passages as well that seem to hint at this. Think of Daniel, Daniel chapter 10. Uh, where we have the reference, he said, Do you know why I've come to fight against you? But now I will return to fight against the prince. Do you know why I've come to you? Now I will return to the fight against the prince of Persia. 
When I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. And again, the next verse, I tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, against these except Michael, your prince. Now, while I enjoyed Frank Peretti's novels, his present darkness and so forth, I, I do think that he places too much weight on the actions of angels in determining the course of, of human events. And the, if possible, and I think he does, place too much weight on human prayer as, as giving power to the angels to control human events. History is ruled by God. It's under the sovereignty of, of God and ruled by Christ. And yet, he is onto something there because certainly it seems that there are, are there's angelic uh, battle, angelic influence, uh, action, opposition that seems to be referred to here. We might wish for more elaboration. And yet, nevertheless, it does seem that there is something going on here in the angelic realm that does influence things happening on earth. And we think in New Testament, uh, Ephesians 6, of course, where uh, Paul refers to our wrestling against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, where Peretti got his title from, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. And in fact, in Ephesians 2, uh, Paul can refer to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. Some render that the prince of this realm. And even remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan. Satan points to the kingdoms of the world and says, I'll give these to you. You'll bow down and worship me. We'll say, well, how can Satan give them to Christ? They don't belong to him. Well, ultimately, no. But in a sense, they do. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God and sided with Satan, there is a sense in which Satan holds the loyalty of the hearts of fallen people. The sense in which the kingdoms of this world are his. And their loyalty to him. And so there is this mindset, and there's something to it scripturally, that this world is under an, an angelic administration, certainly under the overall sovereignty of God. And the writer of the Hebrews seems to acknowledge that. He says, but it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. And when he refers to the world to come, he's certainly referring to heaven and, and the future after this present world is, is, is gone and done with. But we have to think in terms of eschatology, the word that means last study of the last things, eschatos, Greek word for last, Certainly, after everything here is said and done, but we need to remember that the last times, the last things began here with the death and resurrection of Christ. That's the beginning of the eschaton, the end, to where we have overlapping this present evil age with the age that is to come, inaugurated by the death and resurrection, ascension to Christ to his Father's right hand. Then you and I, as believers, belong to that age to come, that world to come, even as we live here in this present world. And what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is not just that Christ begins his reign after it's all said and done. His reign is going on now in terms of those of us who have trusted in him, who follow him, submit to him, belong to the kingdom of Christ. We are under his rule, no longer under Satan's rule. No longer are those principalities and powers, but under the rule of Christ. 
And this age to come, this old world is passing away. The age to come has been inaugurated, it's begun, it's growing. And Christ is the king of that age that is to come. And if you're a Christian, that age of which you, even while you live in this world, are a part. Isn't that exciting? How much, how much more glorious, how much more exciting, how much more motivating that is than just, you know, moralism with a Christian veneer. We just all need to be good and act like Jesus. We are part of a kingdom that is invading this world. And there are battles. There are casualties. There's hardships. See that as we study Exodus 2, 1 through 10 today. Even in the Old Testament context, God had his foothold in this world, although Pharaoh did his best to erase it, to, to get rid of it. But Christ has come. And this world to come is subjected to Christ, this eschatological age, the age of the Spirit, the age that is to come. And then to support that, in verse 6, he cites uh, part of Psalm 8. Now, have you ever known the Bible said something, but you can't remember where it said it? I, I know it says it somewhere. Well, I think the writer of the Hebrews knew exactly where it was, but he still says it's been testified somewhere which is about as vague as you can get. Someone said in the Bible somewhere, why does he do that? Well, I think he knew more than that about it. But the point is not who the human author was. The point is not where it occurred. The point is is that it was in Scripture, that God was the author, that God said it. And by not specifying any more than that, he he just uh, refers to the authority of the Word. You know, Billy Graham would frequently, when he would quote scripture, he wouldn't be very specific. He wouldn't say, well, you know, in Isaiah 6, 3, it says this. He would just say, the Bible says, and that's enough. Now, we may want to know where it is. We may want, you know, chapter and verse. But it's sufficient merely to know that the Bible says. And that's sort of what the writer to the Hebrews is doing. It's testified somewhere And he quotes from Psalm 8. Now, what does this have to do with what he is saying? Well, this. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Now, we understand this in in Psalm 8. We understand it in context to refer to human beings. That the the writer is amazed at God's creation of man and his relationship to the rest of creation and his relationship to God. Who are we that you should be aware of us? Who are we that you should care about us? I don't know if you've ever had this experience. This this may just be me. I can be sort of odd sometimes. But if you've ever been driving down the highway, I'm not even talking about being up in an airplane, but you're driving down the highway, and way off in the distance, there's a car. Either coming the other way, or maybe way up the highway ahead of you, uh, on the same traveling in the same direction, but just so far away that that car is a speck. You see it, but it's tiny. And you think, as you look at that speck of a vehicle, there's somebody in that car. Somebody, there may be more than one somebody in that car, and they have somewhere they're going. Maybe they're going to see somebody. You know, maybe they're happy about something. Maybe they're upset about something. You know, maybe they're going to work. Maybe they're going on vacation. But there's somebody in that tiny speck with 
hopes and dreams, with heartaches, regrets. But to me, all that looks like is a speck. Not the person, the vehicle. Maybe it's a big vehicle. Maybe it's an expedition, but it's a speck. And inside that is someone who's able to fit into that speck. Of course, you can go up, up an airplane to where people disappear altogether. And I think about Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? You know, I look at that vehicle. All I see of that vehicle in the distance, you know, a mile or two up the road from me is a speck. Think what we look like to God. And you, you, you begin to experience something of the psalmist's amazement that God pays attention to us at all. Verse 7, you made him a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And that's true. God has placed us in charge of this world. He's given us dominion, stewardship, to exercise stewardship and dominion over it, to cultivate it and tend it to the glory of God. And yet, in its fallen condition with a curse, it's often unruly, and we often do not govern it very well. Now, this is true of people, and I think it's true of people first and foremost. But the writer of the Hebrews takes it and uses it not of men, but of the man. You know, Pilate, behold the man, eke homo, behold the man, Jesus, the man. And if it's true of people generally, it is, it is true of Christ specifically and specially. Because, and he even refers to the Son of Man, which is in the Old Testament merely a Hebraic expression referring to people. Uh, think of uh, Jesus' prayer in John 17, it refers to Judas as the son of perdition. As the NIV translates it, one doomed to destruction. Being a son of somebody means you, you have the characteristics of that. Well, a son of man is a human being, a mortal being. But Jesus, of course, took that name to himself as the man, the son of man. Messianic title. And certainly of, of Jesus, he was made, as the writer picks up, a little lower than the angels in his state of humiliation. And yet now God has crowned him with glory and honor and put everything in subjection under his feet. And Paul also picks up on this. You know, the great chapter, First uh, Corinthians 15, chapter on the resurrection. He says, and he quotes, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Also reference to Psalm 110 as well as Psalm 8. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And again, Ephesians 1.22, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. And so we recognize that this is an age to come rule, that Christ is head, he is ruler, he is king over this eschatological age, the age of the spirit, that age that is to come, that began with his death and resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and continues of course, until he appears in glory. And then there will no longer be the overlap of the, this present age and the age to come. For us, it will all be the age to come. This present evil age will have passed away. But there's a second way that he describes this rule of Christ. It's uh, also a not-so-obvious rule. It is an age-to-come rule. It's also a not-so-obvious rule. Again, hyphenated, not-so-obvious, 8b. Notice uh, the second part of verse 8, after he leaves off the quotation from Psalm 8, he says, 
Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Everything's there. It's all under his control. At present, however, he says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Someone might say, you know, you say Jesus is in control. Jesus reigns. Well, it sure doesn't look like it. There's there's this tension there, and he picks up on that. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Uh, Certainly true whether you're talking of man's stewardship of the earth, but it's also true when you talk about the reign of Christ, where everything is put under his feet. Now, there are a couple of reasons it's not so obvious. One, we talked about this morning, mysteries of providence. Remember this morning, talking about... uh, Israel, under Pharaoh's uh, command that the Israelite children are to be cast, the boys cast into the Nile, doing their best to, to avoid that, and yet there were those children who did die. A very painful situation. It's tempting to say, God, where are you? You're in control. Why is this going on? That's one of the ways that we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. Ultimately, it is, as we talked about God's providence, he was at work so that Moses was spared. That's one of the reasons we don't yet see all things in subjection to him, things that are just not apparent to us. How, can, how is he in control here? How can he use this for his glory and for our good? I don't understand. We trust it so. But it does mean we might say with the author to the Hebrews, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. It seems there are those who, who, who oppose him and get away with it. And also, and along with that, because of the continued presence of sin. We live in a world uh, characterized by sin, personal sin, public sin, uh, corporate sin, not in the sense of corporations, but groups, people as a whole, societies, maybe corporations too. Uh, private sin, public sin, personal sin, um, where people flaunt God's character, God's law, all the time. Consciously, unconsciously. People deny God exists, uh, live the way they want. And we're back to what the writer of the Hebrews says. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And yet we know that he rules. Ruling until everything is placed under his feet, uh, practically, even as it is in principle. So it's a not-so-obvious rule, which means that we hold to that in faith. That Christ rules. That Christ is bringing all things together for the good of those who love him. For the good of those who are called according to his purpose, even when we don't see how, even when... We go through bitter providences because we trust in him. We rest in him. Uh, not so obvious is the reign of Christ at times. But then he goes on, on in verse 9 to describe the reign of Christ as a blood-bought rule. A blood-bought rule. He tells us here that it is an age-to-come rule, that it is a not-so-obvious rule, and that it's blood-bought. Look at verse 9. What we do see... Is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, in his humiliation, his incarnation, 
now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, again, the humiliation, the exaltation. Let's start with the humiliation. Because of the suffering of death, Jesus suffered death by the grace of God, tasting death for everyone. Uh, Jesus submitted himself to that. He did. He was lower than the angels in that sense, giving up his heavenly glory, giving up his heavenly position, not giving up his divine nature, but taking to himself a human nature, human body, living here in this world, suffering in this world, being tempted in this world, all these things, and humbling himself, suffering eventually death itself, so that by the grace of God, and we always have to recognize that, you know, those are not just throwaway words, filler words. You know, we don't we don't speak of the death of Christ as though somehow he owed us that. It was all grace, all grace, all grace. That by the grace of God he might taste death. For everyone. Interesting way to put it. To taste death. It's like drinking a poison. You know, to, to experience that. He didn't just die. He tasted death. For everyone. Obviously not a, uh, not a defense of, our, of, of universalism. Uh, in fact, in verse 10, he, he, he in the next verse, he sort of qualifies that in bringing many sons to glory. Uh, he spoke of giving his life a ransom for many. Uh, everyone could be qualified, every, obviously scripturally, everyone who believes. You know, if we're going to talk of human response, everyone who believes. Or if we're going to talk from God's point of view, everyone who is elect. Uh, obviously, Jesus didn't taste death for everyone, but those who believe in him. The offer is to everyone to repent and believe, to have a Savior who died for them. But because he humbled himself, because he suffered death, because by God's grace he tasted death for everyone, then the writer to the Hebrews says he was crowned with glory and honor. We do see that. We do know that. We recognize that. We may not see, in terms of experience, his rule over all things, the subjection of all things to him, but we do see that he suffered and died and was raised and exalted, that he received glory and honor. And in fact, you can hardly read this without thinking about what Paul writes in Philippians 2, the great so-called Christ hymn of his suffering and his exaltation, where he links the suffering of Christ with his exaltation. He suffered, he humbled himself, Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Hebrews 2 9, in response to that, says, it doesn't just say God, then God highly exalted him. Became obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Verse 9 says, therefore God highly exalted him. And this kind of goes back to our study in 1 Peter of that whole relationship of suffering to glory. Christ suffered, humbled himself, suffered, died. Therefore, God exalted him. Now, Christ is unique in that sense. He suffered a far deeper 
humiliation than you and I ever will, and he received a far higher glory than you and I will ever receive. But in union with Christ, we too suffer with him, and we will be raised to glory with him, sharing in his suffering, sharing in his glory. And because of that, we know that everything is in subjection to his feet. You see, Satan's temptation to Jesus was, you bow down and worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. The temptation was to receive the reign, to receive the glory, to receive the rule without the cross. Just bypass that pesky detail of the suffering and death. And that's the temptation to us. We want glory, we just don't want the suffering. Whether it's persecution or any kind of of suffering because of the sinful world, sickness, injury, whatever. And yet the two go together and the one follows the other. Suffering with Christ. Enjoying glory with Christ. We see that. We know that. And therefore, we are assured that everything is and will be in subjection under his feet. You see, Christ wouldn't go for Satan's temptation. He gave his own life. He shed his own blood to win back those nations to himself. To atone for their rebellion. To atone for their waywardness. Our waywardness. To win us back to himself. It is a blood-bought rule. Just as there's an age-to-come rule. Just as there's a not-so-obvious rule. It is a rule that Christ attained by his willingness to go through with the cross. You see, it's not to angels that Christ subjected, or that God subjected the world to come, of which the writer to the Hebrews is speaking. The angels may have some role to play, but they are ultimately only servants who do the bidding of God. But it is Christ who, through his life, his suffering and death for his people, has earned a crown by which he reigns in this world now, yes, though we may not always see it, and will reign forever in a reign that is perfectly obvious, not only to us who love him, but to his once and for all and finally conquered and defeated enemies as well. Let's pray. Father, we do long for that day when the reign of Christ will be perfectly obvious to everybody. We pray, come Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, Father, we do live by faith and not by sight. Lord, we thank you for the sweet providences that we see in our lives that remind us that our Jesus is on the throne and that he reigns for the good of his people. And Father, increase our faith in those bitter providences when we suffer, when life is hard. To trust that all things are in subjection to our King. And he's working them all out for our good and our blessing and his glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.